0: Reflecting on our, the ending of our second full day and night together. Beautiful full moon rising. This cultivation of the path of awakening is quite a journey, a challenging journey. But as uh, someone who inspired us a lot, as Ram Das used to say, it's the only dance there is once we realize the damage and danger of living unconsciously, then we try to do the best we can to return, to connect, to keep beginning again. This rising of the full moon There's lots of uh, sannyā perceptions, memories for me in the uh, Buddhist tradition. Many of you, maybe most of you, uh, know these uh, full moon o- occasions, not only Buddhist but also the pre-Buddhist. Uh, are potentized occasions for remembering why we're doing all this. In the Buddhist tradition they call it days, the full moon then the waning half moon and the new moon and the waxing half moon. So Approximately once a week, but uh, these phases of the moon, these rhythms of nature which we're part of. One can recognize when the moon is full. One can recognize when it begins to wane, become a half moon. One can recognize when it's gone. It's a dark sky allows the starlight to shine more brightly and the appearance of the moon again the waxing moon but these were occasions where uh, the Buddha encouraged us to uh, take stock remember our intention what what is our intention why do we practice each of us, to formulate in our own hearts not a right answer why we're doing it. And to remember that intention. And to to remember that without uh, some sort of faith, some sort of trust, practice is impossible. We have to have everything proven to us. We can never take the first step but all of us do share some trust. We wouldn't be coming on a retreat, a meditation retreat. We we somehow trust that, that the Buddha was pointing to something that's real. The saints and sages were pointing to something that is real, that there is such a thing as waking up. If there is a, a possibility of seeing through our confusion and accessing a profundity of wisdom and compassion, this capacity from that deep place of understanding to recognize and respond to and make a difference, alleviate suffering from that place of clarity, from that place of uh, Open heartedness. Nicola he uh, thought that actually, when he was awake, he didn't acquire anything, he knew that was subtle. He realized, he realized, woke up to an already, always already present Amata Dhamma, undying Dhamma, which is here and now, suffusing all experience with its radiance, what he called the Tathagata Garba. The womb of the Thus Come Ones, the, the mother of all Buddhas, comes out of this ground, that all beings share this original brightness, merging in this ground, but that we become refugees from our own sacred core when we get confused. And attached to this karmic configuration, this identification, and that out of that confusion then emerges birth and death and suffering and conflict and all sorts of causes for suffering. Taught a path of. Challenging that basic motion of grasping, identifying, owning. He taught a path of sharing, connecting, realizing our interconnectedness. He taught a path of restraint, not sharing some things. When there's that impulse to harm, he taught not to share that. But to bear it, feel it, permeate it with investigation, understanding. It told us not to share, not to give when, when we're wanting to take, possess. Especially that which doesn't really belong to us. It's all the, the, the precepts and, and that... Can be counterintuitive when sometimes it looks like we just knock out of the way what we don't want, get a hold of what we want. But the Buddha is teaching, trust to me. This, this restraint is honoring the sacred nature of all that breathes, all that lives, because truly we are brothers and sisters, because we merge from the same tree of life, we come from the same source. We taught these these meditative journeys to help us uh, return. The full moon reminds me of the, in our monastic life for the first oh, I don't know I guess for me 15 years every a post of the day we would sit up all night. You know, that's challenging. I entered the monastery at 24, so from 24 to to about 39, that was pretty much every week. There was three years I had to lie down when I was really sick, so I couldn't sit up all night then. But I remember so often, you know, going into these, these the beginning of the all-night sitting, the moon is rising, the, the young enthusiasm, I'm going to conquer it, I'm going to break through. It's uh, you know, beautiful to have that motivation to stay with. Being with the breathing, being with sensation, recognizing the the that which can, when it's not appreciated, hinder us. The, the desire and the aversion, and the doubts, exhaustion, the agitation. And you know, so often I would, you know, start the night, you know, determined. In the stories they have them, um, you know, sitting all night like a rock. Invariably, after, you know, 32 minutes or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, have to change postures, have to change posture, have to change posture, and then before you know it, you're, you're, you're there and you're, you're realizing you almost just fell off the platform. <laughs> and you can start to worry. You have a nose like mine. Uh That's a significant nose. (laughs) You measure the number of feet off the platform you're sitting in. If it goes down that nose into concrete, that would be quick death. (laughs) But you know, and then see other people nodding in your moments of wake, you think, well, I'm not doing too bad, and then it's you nodding. But I'm so grateful that we were taught persistence, but we were also taught patience. And also taught kindness. The kind of kindness that's not what I was touching on this morning. It's not pretending to like everything. But a... a brahmavyara, a noble abiding of not adding aversion to the mix. If there's aversion there, not adding more aversion keep allowing, keep welcoming, keep trusting that there's an alchemy, that there's something that's happening, invariably with all the frustrations and disappointments and trying and collapsing and at times rather than clarity, the mind's just an alphabet soup of stuff, But invariably, I found by the dawn, it's the light element starting to increase again and that shining moon is starting to set. And one is almost like been through a tumble dryer. Being on retreat can be like going through a tumble dryer or a washing machine or a but all that struggle and trying and failing and beginning again, there was a surrender. And then we would, uh, at the dawn, and then get our bowls and then walk out of the forest into the villages as the town was waking up. Oftentimes, some of the villi- villagers, because we were in a wonderful poor rural part of Thailand where a lot of the villagers had uh, faith in the Buddha, they would uh, sit with us. And especially the women, would, they would sit by the rocks. They were incredible. <sighs> but having been through that night, there was a possibility then of not pushing, not pulling, just being there. Not complicating. The moments with all sorts of expectations, demands, wonderings. Everything had beauty. Everything was beautiful. The exhaustion was beautiful. The dawn was beautiful. The support of ground had its beauty. The joy, could be called the, just the joy of being. joy of, of recognizing all that stuff, manifesting, screaming, the cries of the world. These are Kuan Yin listens at ease to the cries of the world. As we're practicing internally, externally, we're, we're in training to bear, to be able to bear and feel and metabolize the cries of the world. And one has the possibility of touching into that dimension that is infusing it all with vitality. That dimension that knows, that's aware. The... Well, before I read what the Buddha said, the the image that reminded me, I realized while I I had an image. It's a bit simple. When I was even growing up in school, I was a very diligent student, wanted to be the best, and all these things we had to learn were written on the board and then with the chalk and this and that, and we would memorize it and then practice it with Dad. He would test us on our math skills. How quick we could do the numbers, the additions, subtractions, divisions. But what I loved was was in the morning, there was always this relief to be able to see that, uh, that board that could be so complicated, it was washed clean, it was empty, but filled with incredible possibility, that empty heart that is a space for Magic for everything to manifest and shift and change. It was a, lot, a bit like that at the end of those all night sittings. In a famous uh, teaching that the Buddha gave in the Sharangama Sutra, a wonderful Chinese, uh, it's really prominent Master Shunwa, our Chinese master, uh, pointed to this sutra as very important in in understanding samadhi, and we'll talk about this later. But there's a quote in the sutra where the Buddha is speaking, shangama means durable. (coughs) It's pointing to that samadhi, that abiding that can't be harmed, that is unshakable. One of the definitions of sacred is it's unassailable. The unassailable, the unshakable, the truly durable, the truly essential. In this Shurangama Sutra, one of the statements the Buddha said is the primary misconception about the mind and body is the false view that the mind dwells in the physical body. You do not know that the physical body, as well as the mountains, the rivers, empty space, and the great earth are all within the wonderful, bright, true mind. Can be this view? No, no, no. Excuse me, this all, but that's not scientific. Consciousness is a chemical byproduct. <laughs> it's a chemical byproduct. But it's just interesting. The Buddha says, primary misconception about the mind and body is this mistaken, this false view that the mind dwells in the physical body. It sometimes feels like we're inside the skull. We're locked inside this form, this skin, this frame, this mood, this affliction. You do not know, he says, that this physical body, and I'm sure we could add the moods, the afflictions, as well as the mountains. The rivers, empty space and the great earth are all within the wonderful, bright true mind. This body right now. This experience of sitting here together, what we're feeling. It's it's manifesting. We're learning to recognize that it's appearing. What's it appearing to? The memory of eating supper is a memory now. Those of us who had the lovely soup, mushroom soup, blessing of food, else we have memory what's going to happen later tonight what's going to happen tomorrow what's going to happen to the country what's going to happen to the world I don't know we don't know what's happening now we can see the memories the concern about what's going to happen but these body, these sensations are happening, appearing within this consciousness. We might think we're moving through the retreat, but actually the retreat is manifesting moment after moment in this heart of ours. The Buddha was from the warrior caste but he and that part of that inheritance I think is very important. We don't want to just demonize the warriors. Yes, warriors that fight to harm, just get lost in domination, but the Faculty that stood the Buddha so well was that perseverance, that staying with, and then later that sense of a guardian, a guardian who has concern, compassionate concern. He considered all beings his children that were caught in a burning house, and he wanted to find ways to guide them, coax them skillfully out of that burning house of birth and death and suffering that kept perpetuating itself through greed, hatred, and delusion. But a certain persistence is really helpful. And in our training, where this persistence will help us but we can't, as uh, Master Hua used to say, you can't drink the ocean in one gulp. Rajan Cha would, would tell us, he, would, he had very earthy images. He would say, hmm, don't pretend you have a ten-wheeler truck when you have a wheelbarrow. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't say your capacity can increase. But we, each of us, We have to trust our own body, mind, our own intuition beginning again to to sense what we can do. And this principle of samadhi is so helpful. He talked about why what are the uses of this samadhi, the first use of this training. He said it's very important to learn. He didn't say your yearnings and distress with regard to the world are just wrong. He didn't say that. There is a lot to be distressed about. There's a lot to yearn for. A compassion yearning to make a difference is is considered compassion. It's skillful. But he also taught that it's skillful to be able to have the agility To be able, in moments, to let that be. To learn how to subdue that. (coughs) For the sake of unification. What was the first use of unification? He said, to learn to cultivate and access a pleasant abiding in the here and now. It's the healing dimension of meditation. It allows us to, to restore. To take a holiday, a true holiday, a holy day. Another definition of sacred is holy and holy. H o l i comes from a root whole. One of the definitions, the way the Buddha Buddha talked about samadhi, is learning to come together. There's a unification. We we gather, just like the trees. many of them in winter time drop the leaves and gather as we're moving more into autumn and then winter gather strength that then gives rise to the wonderful springing forth of new life. In the time of the Buddha, he went on retreat. I don't know if he needed it or not, but he set an example that this is really helpful for us to go deeper, to restore, to get into perspective. You also taught that this samadhi is for knowledge and vision. The more we learn how to be composed in the moment, more terms of a very refined knowledge and vision, that means when samadhi is really cultivated uh, the saints and sages, uh, Buddha talks about being able to to intuitively know things. To know one's past lives, to be able to sense the minds of others, to be able to, to do uh, extraordinary things. But even if we're not able to levitate and See past lives, when we're more composed, whatever the mind turns to, information about that, direct information will come up. Our intuition will deepen, not just by what someone else said. When we're composed and then we turn to a circumstance, a situation that can be a, a fresh look, That's why on retreats sometimes we can have so many ideas, perspectives, or patience. Also a use for samadhi, he says, is the mindfulness and alertness. In other words, the more we develop this capacity to compose ourselves, then it allows us to be more present for our lives. So that we're not just on automatic, we're connected. But the final and, and uh, most profound, very profound use of samadhi is that it liberates us from the outflows. What are the outflows? These floods, they're called asavas. They, they carry us, our views, dita asava, kamasava, the, the idea of wanting just to hold on to that which is pleasing in the sense world. I mean it's natural because pain is no fun. The idea of we could just hold on to what is pleasing. But as we all know, can't do it. Wouldn't it be nice if the moon was always full? Wouldn't it be nice if things were always pleasant? Wouldn't it be nice if everyone was always in harmony? It just things change. Kamasava, Bhavasava, Ditasava, Vija. Just we're swept out by wanting to become something, swept out by aversion, swept out by delusion, and then we lose touch with this this original brightness, this core. So ultimately, as the retreat goes on, we will use some of our accumulator. We might not feel it, but we're, little by little, just going through this process together. Our samadhi is building up. Our capacity to bear. Bear the changing states. To find this ground of uh, bodily presence however we're using it and I just really encourage us to trust the value of uh, cultivating this agility when we do let go of our longings and distress that doesn't mean to say we're letting it go forever we're learning in moments It's called viveka, to turn the mind to dwell with the body, using the breath, using the breathing. To reveal this heart of ours so that we're not just captivated by external states, that we're learning to discover this quality of jitta, this quality of heart. and That when our energy is not being so sprayed and scattered by going this way and going that way, and we're learning to, in this moment, say, how is it now? And to use sound, or however we, we do it, to use kindness to first learn to just not get caught up in fighting and rejection and be able to use this rhythm of breathing, of refreshing, of calming, of steadying. Buddha talks about this long breath to refresh and calm. Then he talks about being with the short breath. That that means that, uh, as we were taught, that at a certain point, being with the body, there's a certain part of being with the body that's, that's that's easier for us, it might be at the nostrils. Our teacher, Ajahn Chah, found it very helpful to be there. Some of us might prefer being with the rising and falling of the heart. Some of us it's easier for the belly, swelling and subsiding, or for some just a general sense of the body breathing. But just learning to have an immediate, direct reflection of connecting with life, of just being what's called the short breath, because it's just being with the vibration, the subtle breath in that one place, like standing by the, the sea and having the waves come in and go out, just witnesses the in-breath and the out-breath in one place, that sensation. And to be able to use a phrase, a word, Shortened, moderated, like butto, the name of the Buddha, that's what they use in Thailand. Breathing in but, breathing out, to, it just means awake. It just reminds us, or even a word like in and out, just to remind us to be here, to keep us on track. And So for a time, when other things comes in that want us to think about this and want us to think about that, we're not rejecting it, but we're just saying, not now. I'm restoring. I am finding the well that will infuse my life again with resilience and brightness and connection to ground, to source. And being able to then encourage us to to then receive and connect to this moment and touch into what's called pitti. The Buddha wants us to develop some capacity for joy. He said that's, a, that's one of the factors of enlightenment. There can be sometimes so much to, that is wrong, We sometimes we can maybe feel we don't deserve it. That was just life-changing for me. To realize that there is a natural quality of, and it's natural, of joy that can well up, that we can cultivate, that can be right here to in this moment. Just by receiving whatever the sensations in the body are, even if they're tired, we can be interested and hold those and savor them as we breathe in and out a quiet joy of just being awake of being able to, even in a moment allow the energy of that breath as it brightens us on the in-breath on the out-breath we relax and feel some sukha, ease just to be here now. And as that capacity even to be with the short breath in one part, then the Buddha encourages to little by little learn to widen, widen the awareness. That's the healing part. Some of you know I had a history, almost of uh, died of typhoid fever in my early years in, uh, in Thailand, and then... For many years I was sick, constant pain, internal bleeding. The doctors couldn't do much about it. after I got over the typhoid. I spent three years lying down, almost all lying down, because I had to get up to try to go to the bathroom. But uh, this, this, this practice of learning to widen the awareness to include the whole body, to breathe in and out. Each out-breath I would surrender to Mother Earth. So grateful places to lie down. I could, you just give me any little square, any little dingy room, if I could lie down. When one lies down, one is then held by ground. The out-breath, Buddha encouraged us how to Use that out for surrender, letting be and feeling that support, just as Mother Earth supports the body. So, too, the mind can gently rest with the body and steady itself. Each out relaxing. Each in-breath, a little blessing of vitality from the magic of the cosmos. And then one, because I had all this inflammation, internal bleeding, pain. Wherever it was painful would call attention. That's its function. So as one, rather than panicking about pain, an important training the Buddha says: pleasure and pain are natural. We need them. Pain reminds us of something that needs attention. So then that pain would call me Then, as I breathe into that painful area and then breathing out, widening, softening, allowing that subtle breath energy from that very breath and to mingle with that tissue and the surrounding tissue. And then one then notices, because remember, instead of consciousness being inside the... The body, the rivers, the mountains, the great earth herself are all within the wonderful, bright, true mind. So when one widens and notices the whole body, the body is inside the mind. Then the different parts of the body start to communicate with each other. The body is in the mind, the connection with body-mind deepens and in the different parts of the body as we breathe in and out and soften and relax the different elements and can balance. The Buddha talks about this process with a simile. He's talking about the first jhana, the first natural stage on it just means a, a state of being of stability plugged in. It's called absorption. It's when we're it's a steady state. is how he talks about it. Having abandoned the five hindrances when for a moment we put them aside wanting something, not wanting something being drowsy, the moment when we're not drowsy, (coughs) when we're not just agitated. So we brighten the drowsiness, we a little bit calm the agitation, when we're not just caught in worry and uncertainty. So if we abandon or move toward that, Secluded from sense pleasures, just looking for something else. Secluded from unwholesome state, the practitioner enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by vitakka vichara. That means that directed thought. So that first state of peace has some thought in it. It's a quiet thought. It has thought and what's called examination here. It just It's not that you're taking an exam, but it's that part of the mind that feels into. It points back and feels into. So the mind is playing with the body. It can be that first jhana, it can be even with a thought. Breathing in, breathing out. Or quant in. Or steady, steady. That doesn't interfere, but the thought is sure. It dissolves. It just reminds us to be present and reminds the mind to feel into and explore the sensations. That's what's meant by thought and examination. The practitioner enters and dwells in this first abiding jhana, which is accompanied by applied thought and examination or exploring with rapture and happiness, born of that seclusion. That energy, when we pull our mind even for a moment back to obsessive, being caught in the longing and distress with regard to the world, we just even let it go for a little time. That seclusion, all that extra energy that was going out, guess what? It starts emerging inside the heart itself rapture and happiness born of that seclusion. A practitioner makes that rapture and happiness born of the seclusion drench, steep, fill, pervade this body so that there is no part of the whole body that is not pervaded by this piti sukha, this, this joy and happiness born of seclusion. Here's the simile, just as a skilled bathman. Keeps bath powder in a brass basin, sprinkling it gradually with water, kneads it until the moisture wets the ball of bath powder, soaks it, pervades it inside and out, and if the ball itself does not drip, all that moisture pervades and there's a transmutation to that happens soaks and pervades it says the Buddha inside and out but the ball does not trip out this practitioner this monk, this nun makes this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, dreams deep, fill and pervade the whole body so that no part of the whole body is not pervaded by that happiness born of this viveka, born of this moment of letting go And again, and then here's the next image for this next abiding that we can, we can touch into with the subsiding of thought and examination. At a certain point when we don't have to tell ourselves to be present. When the mind gets quiet. We're not reminding ourselves to be here because we're here. With the subsiding of this thought Practitioner dwells in the second jhana, which has internal confidence and unification of the heart. It's without thought and examination. It has rapture and happiness born of this concentration. Practitioner makes that piti sukha born of that samadhi drench, steep, feel, pervade this body so that there's no part of the whole body that's not pervaded. <laughs> By that rapture and ease born of concentration. Here's the image, just as a lake whose waters welled up from below. And it had no inflow from the east, west, north, or south. And it's not replenished from rain. But the cool font of water is welling up in the lake. This cool water drenches, steeps, fills, and pervades the lake so that no part of the whole lake is not pervaded by that cool water. So too does the practitioner. Allow this happiness and joy. Born of concentration, drenched steep, fill the whole body. Don't need to be afraid of the possibility of moments of joy. We don't have to look too far away, and allow this body, out of compassion, to take time to allow ourselves to withdraw and just. With kindness, envelop this body mind. (coughs) Receive that gift of the in-breath and out-breath. Deeper breath, refreshing, calming, and steady, widening, and then allowing that alchemy to happen. Calming. And to hold it very lightly then as we widen in any little feeling of enjoyment. Like if there's no big desire right now, no big aversion right now, can we rejoice? This mind can be present and relax and allow that energy to bless this body. And as we breathe out and just rest in that kindness, that presence, can we allow that energy to emanate? Is here. These qualities, of kindness, compassion, patience, joy, ease, are not somewhere else. They're treasures within this heart. When a monk got so attached to the Buddha and the Buddha sent him away, he was distraught. The Buddha said, why are you distraught? He said, you sent me away. And the Buddha said, pointing to his body, this is not the Buddha. When we see the Dhamma, that's when we really meet the Buddha. So we, working with this very heart, this very awareness, have a chance to walk that ancient path and align with, and merge with all living beings. So encouraging us to uh, take heart and uh, use our time well. Thank you for giving of yourselves on this arduous journey. May we stay with it allow the alchemy to happen for the welfare of all.